Hello, and welcome to Outward for January 2019. Happy New Year, fam. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I'm Brandon Tensley, the associate editor at New America and a contributing writer at Pacific Standard Magazine. And I'm gay cackling over the fact that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez quoted Monique Hart from RuPaul's Drag Race on Twitter when she said, Facts are facts, America. It was a chef kiss moment. Hi, I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of The Waves, Slate's podcast about women and gender. And I am currently considering doing Cody Fern at the Golden Globes drag at my next fancy gay event. Did y'all see what Cody Fern was wearing? 100%. Christina, are you going to get the Cloven shoes? So That's that you, a step too far. <laughs> those are the, the best part of that look, which was an amazing look, but the best part that I think some people didn't notice was that he had like satanic like oh. goat, you know, <laughs> uh, styled uh, shoes on un- un- underneath that beautiful um, frock that he was wearing. That's like one level beyond toe socks. <laughs> also cannot abide. Soggy. So, but everything else, the smoky eye, mm-hmm. the sort of 90s floppy hair mullet, the blouse with a sheer panel on the top, the high-waisted pleated slacks like i'm doing all of that Although i feel like the the shoes kind of support what you were saying in the in a previous episode brian about the devil being gay so mm-hmm. oh i know i clocked it <laughs> i'm brian louder the editor of outward and i'm thrilled to begin 2019 with the knowledge that is new to me that queer women have officially claimed the bent neck lady from the haunting <laughs> of hill house as a lesbian icon oh have we <laughs> you have I- <laughs> The words that you said make no sense to me. So, well, do you know who the Bent Neck Lady is, right? From, no. Okay, so you have to see the Hill House show okay. uh, that was on Netflix uh, to know that. But it's a, it's a character in that. And according to a Vice piece that came out uh, in January that was sort of talking about uh, a flowering of lesbian culture that's happened recently, <laughs> the Bent Neck Lady has been claimed much like the Babadook was claimed uh, in 2017 yes. as a gay icon. Uh, the Bent Neck Lady was, was, has been been claimed apparently now and i think this is a great great thing for lesbians great thing for all queer people and i hope we continue to claim various uh monsters going forward uh, i'm not gonna speculate about why her neck is so bent but i have a few ideas <laughs> <laughs> oh you, yeah well you'd have to watch and see that's all I'm gonna i've say. only seen the first couple of episodes but i would actually like to just like stop now and just pretend like christina's reasons are correct for why <laughs> well we can leave it like that i think that's fine <laughs> All right, so in the fading glow of the holidays, January is usually thought of as a time of self-improvement or self-recrimination, with people hitting the gym and cutting out dairy and Marie Kondoing their junk drawers and even, I'm told, not drinking. Gasp! But since all of that is very boring, uh, we thought we'd focus instead this month on something fun and uh, certainly something that those of us with the means and inclination uh, often fantasize about in the dead of winter. So this month's theme is queer travel. We'll start by hashing out what that means for each of us and sharing our experiences of traveling while queer. Then we'll speak with the pioneering lesbian anthropologist Esther Newton about the queer enclaves she's explored in her work and her new memoir, My Butch Career. After that, we'll hear from a genderqueer individual about what it's like to travel when officials and strangers are constantly surveilling your gender expression. We'll have an advice question about perceiving homophobia while traveling, and we'll issue our usual updates to the gay agenda. But first, we have a January edition of Prides and Provocations. This one is especially close to my heart because it is the 15th anniversary of the premiere of The L Word this month. 
And of course, our provocations are in tribute to Bette Porter's infamous provocations art exhibition on that show. So Mm. Brandon, why don't you hit us with your P or P? Uh, So I have a pride this month, Mm. kind of usual for me. And that's because of Melissa McCarthy's performance in Can You Ever Forgive Me? I don't know if you guys have seen it. I really want to. I haven't yet. I've seen it twice. It's so good. You've Um, seen it twice in theaters? In theaters. East Street. Um, So she was nominated for a Golden Globe the other night. And so it's a biographical drama set in the early 90s in New York. And McCarthy plays Lee Israel, a down-on-her-luck writer who's also a lesbian, um, who starts forging literary letters to make ends meet. Does not, to me, it did not sound like the most, like, interesting premise for, like, a movie. <laughs> but I, like, finished it the first time and was like, oh, my God, what is this? Um, so without spoiling too much, what I love about the movie is what I think has actually been woefully under-discussed by a lot of critics, which is what the movie has to say about queer friendship. Mm. Um, And not only queer friendship, but queer friendship among older people. So Lee's friend turned accomplice is Jack, played by Richard Grant. So he's a gay man we find out later is homeless. Um, And so what the film really charts is the contours of this friendship among these two characters, both of whom are increasingly isolated largely by the sheer fact that they're older and gay in the AIDS-ravaged New York of the early 90s, but managed to find solace in each other's company. Um, So one of my favorite lines is when Jack tells Lee with this pitch black humor, I haven't got any friends. They're all dead. Um, So he gets at this isolation as well as the government inaction and the ambient homophobia that really helped to create this this environment for uh, gay people at the time. Um, And I'd argue that the, the lack of talk around this aspect of the movie proves my point about how as mm. attentive as socially progressive people may have become to all sorts of factors that shape people's experiences, that particular juncture of age and sexuality hasn't really permeated the conversation in the same way. So if you have not seen Can You Ever Forgive wow. Me? Definitely go to. see it. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get on that. so good. Uh, Christina, what do you have? I also have a pride. I am proud of my fellow queers in Slater Kinney for their upcoming album. Obviously, I haven't listened to it yet. I'm not that close to them. (laughs) But they announced it um, on January 8th, and it's produced by St. Vincent Uh, slash uh Annie Clark, Uh uh who used to date Carrie Brownstein from Slater Kinney, who used to date her own bandmate, Corinne Tucker, which makes it like the gayest shit in the world that there's just like all of these ex-lovers like helping each other thrive and making beautiful art i'm in love with everyone involved in this project and i'm so excited to listen to it and inevitably see them when they go on tour Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's like what you said on the family episode about how exes mean different things for queer people so it's all coming full circle and when they were together i would constantly fantasize about like the beautiful music they would make at home together sexually and musically. <laughs> They're actually making music together now, so I'm just so stoked about it. Yeah, the energy in that room is going to be so fantastic. Ugh, in the studio, yes. I love it. I love it. Brian, what's yours? So I'll I'll have a provocation. Okay, cool. Provoke <laughs> Since us. Since everybody's so happy uh, in January. Um, yes, there's an article in the January-February issue of The Atlantic that goes under the title, It's Time to Drop the LGBT from LGBTQ the case for a new term that describes all sexual minorities. And this is by Jonathan Rausch. This piece is silly and unnecessary. Um, If you haven't read it, you can go read it and see why, because I can't get into all the reasons here. But let me just read a quick nut graph line from it that will explain what it's about, and then I will tell you why it provokes me. So 
he's been he's been writing about like how the LGBT uh, sort of acronym has been extended over time, and and he doesn't like that. The alphabet soup designation for sexual minorities has become a synecdoche for the excesses of identity politics, excesses that have helped empower the likes of Donald Trump. It's time to retire the term and find a replacement. I propose the single letter Q. <laughs> So I just want to point out, yeah, I just want to point out, among other things, that Q is already a letter in this acronym. It means (laughs) queer in most cases. And queer, in fact, stands for, like, all of the people. That's the idea. Jonathan does point out later, or argue later in the piece, that some people don't like the word queer or uncomfortable with it because, you know, it was used as a slur in the past. But I really think, by and large, most queer people they're like okay with this and we have it we also have the phrase sexual and gender minorities if you're uncomfortable with a super long you know lgbtqia acronym uh, that you can use so this is not a problem that needed solving um, and the reasons which are basically about like not making straight people uncomfortable with having to deal with the idea of like lots of different types of folks different from them is offensive so this is a dumb piece um, we have q we have queer use it or don't uh, and it's all fine uh, and stop I whining about that. Find it hilarious to imagine a world in which people are so uncomfortable by the the quote unquote alphabet soup of right. LGBTQ that they then vote for Donald Trump, no. and they could have been <laughs> prevented from doing so by us just using the letter Q instead. Like, oh, the Q community. Oh yeah, everyone's going to be so <laughs> pleased with that. Yeah, that yeah. they'll you know reject right. it's, it's, it's It's a it's a tongue twister that's like driving all of that bigotry <laughs> and transphobia and homophobia right it's not it's not it's not like actual uh hatred of people um yeah so so it's it's silly it's a shame that that got so much space in a preeminent magazine um but but there it is i too am provoked by that brian thank you for bringing that to our attention mm-hmm. all right brandon why don't you take us into our theme so as brian mentioned earlier this month's theme is queer travel so one of the things i really love about the idea of queer travel is just how nebulous the entire thing is so like in addition to so many other things you can interpret it to mean traveling to places that have a very explicit or specific queer history or resonance i'm thinking of fire island in new york soho in london p-town in massachusetts Or you can think of it merely as traveling as a queer person, which a lot of times brings its own uh, uniquely queer joys and challenges. So, Brian, what does queer travel mean to you? I love this question. I think, you know, I think at one point in my life, I would have definitely said it meant traveling to specifically queer or gay destinations. So enclaves like Fire Island or P-Town uh, or like Siches in Spain. Um, and I've been to a lot of those places uh, over the years. But more and more, I think for me, it's like approaching travel from a queer perspective perspective that sounds kind of intense but like what i mean is basically like when i travel anywhere i like to try to suss out what the queer world or what parts of the queer world anyway look like in those places yeah i too make a habit of doing that it's one of the things that i love best about traveling is being queer while traveling Mm -hmm. i try to go to at least one queer specific space or event every time i visit a new place especially if i'm there for an extended period of time where that's possible Mm -hmm. i try to make it a lesbian bar if i can because those tend to feel at home for me and i i think it's important for me to you know support those spaces i find it really interesting and fun to see what you know, women-centered queer mm-hmm. life is like in a new place that I visit. So every time I go on a vacation, I'll, 
you know, start Googling while the same time I'm trying to figure out, like, where am I going to stay and what do I want to do? I'll be like queer events, Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. And I'll spend hours usually going down a rabbit hole of like broken links, bars that no longer (laughs) exist, parties that have stopped, Facebook pages that haven't been active since 2014. You find this incredible like old fashioned internet, right? When you do this, Mm -hmm. like it's always geocities, like broken pages, some of which like half of which is right, half of which is like outdated. But yeah, it's like it's that in itself is like a, Mm -hmm. it's like a queer kind of travel, like just the research. Oh my God, completely. And uh, it's, I think that, well, my partner thinks I'm uh, good at this because I'm a journalist, so I have a lot of capacity to go through like 10 pages of Google searches (laughs) or like, oh, so-and-so wrote a blog post about the best uh, dyke parties in 2015. Let me click on that author to see if they, you know, wrote anything else or like mentioned something in passing because all the parties they mentioned aren't happening anymore. So it's like that has also been dispiriting to me to see it, th- this record of how many places have mm-hmm. closed, how many mm-hmm. queer spaces have closed. It's also made me realize how important queer blogs and newspapers mm-hmm. and magazines can be to queer travelers because you're being thrown into a new place that, you know, sometimes it's not the bar that just has the rainbow flag outside will usually be for gay men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. I was really hoping to disagree with both of you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think for me, it's also... Um, Queer travel involves attaching my queer self to just another specific queer element. Um, it could be a gay historical site. It could be a gay bar. It could be a drag show. It can even be something as seemingly small and insignificant as like using a gay app, like while you're traveling, you know, mm-hmm. using something that tries to recreate the sort of like queer sociability. Do you find that your experience on, let's say, Grinder? changes based on where you travel to yes what's also interesting because like certain apps like just you know they're used by different people in different places so mm-hmm. um i think Scruff when, is like so specific it seems like right right yeah. like i feel like grinder is probably like a more universal one like but like i imagine like using like grinder in like southeast asia or something like that would probably you'd probably run into like a lot of expats i imagine because mm. it is just so expat have heavy and i imagine that you know like queer Thai people might use a different app or, you know, like, you know, queerness just like presents itself in different ways. Right. So like, Mm -hmm. even though I remember when I lived in Chiang Mai for a year, I remember thinking like, wow, there are like zero gay bars in this city, despite the fact that it's such a popular travel uh, destination for tourists. But then I remember thinking like, well, like part of the barrier there is, you know, what does queerness look like from a like a local Thai perspective in Chiang Mai, right? Mm-hmm. And so like maybe I was like looking in the wrong places or mm-hmm. I mean I didn't know Thai super well. And so it's like I wasn't really in any Thai friend group circles and things like that. So I also like wasn't getting invited to things. Mm-hmm. And and so I think it was also interesting in those ways because I was very much like approaching it with like a me as an American, what do I expect queerness to look like when I'm traveling in these spaces? And so part of it was trying to like reconceptualize like how queer people will try to eke out these sorts of communities where they live. Interesting. Yeah. One thing that I love about going to a queer bar in a new place is seeing how the queer culture differs from, Mm -hmm. you know, the one that I'm used to. I had the experience recently of going to two lesbian bars in China, one Mm -hmm. in Shanghai, one in Beijing. And it it illustrated this, like two things that I love about going to lesbian bars in new places really well. The one in Shanghai felt like home the second that I walked in. It was Mm -hmm. like every lesbian bar I've ever been to. It was like, you know, 
people kind of sitting around at tables talking to each other, then a little bit of a makeshift dance floor where people were just kind of goofing around, the bartenders giving out free drinks to people they knew, Mm -hmm. people coming in and, and being welcomed by big groups of people. And then the other bar that I went to in Beijing was very unique. And I don't want to use it to, you know, generalize about like, this is what Beijing lesbian culture is like, because I don't know. But this specific bar, it was almost all Chinese folks, extremely butch and femme, like pretty much everyone's either passing, Mm -hmm. could pass as a dude or as Mm -hmm. straight. Everyone was just sitting, like not really dancing. Uh, The music was incredibly loud. Everyone was eating. It was a restaurant, too. And someone brought their poodle. There was a poodle uh, sort of like skittering around the empty dance floor to this very, very loud techno music. And yeah, I, I went with somebody who lived in Beijing, so I felt a little bit less like hi, I am an interloper here, like, to observe you. Um, But it definitely felt less like I would have been able to insert myself into the community than Mm -hmm, it felt in mm -hmm. the other bar. Yeah, Christina, what you just said about having someone local, like, introduce you, like, that made me think about the value of sometimes finding, like, either through an app or through a hookup or, like, whatever, someone who is local when you travel to then be sort of your tour guide? Do y'all like try to do that? Or, or have you had experiences with that? I definitely have. Um, and, it, and it really makes a huge difference. And it's it's really something you can only attribute to like being gay, right? That mm-hmm, that, that, mm-hmm. that happens. Oh, yeah. When I'm traveling for work, like I was in China, I felt very empowered to just DM people who seemed like they were, you know, the nightlife queens of whatever city to be like, hey, I'm a journalist in town, like trying and to figure out what's of going DC on. Yourself. And nightlife queen of DC. And, you know, these people like had sort of a reason to talk to me. You know, it was clear I wasn't just hitting on them, which maybe they would have responded to, maybe they wouldn't have. But then I also remember a time in Paris where I was traveling with my partner and two of our friends who were gay men, and we like wanted to know where the best queer spot in the neighborhood was. And I was the only one who spoke French, and I speak very poor French. <laughs> we were sitting at this restaurant, and there was a group of dykes at the next table. And so I spent probably half an hour figuring out in my head how to add, how to say, like, uh-huh. I am here with my like female romantic partner, and we would like to dance. Where should we go? And finally, I figured it out and like went over and asked them. And they were like, yeah, it's down the street or something. <laughs> and, we, and it was a gay bar. And we went there. But yeah, I, I, I think that that's definitely a benefit queer people have that straight people probably don't, where it would be a little bit less appropriate to go up to a random group of people or just less likely that whatever they would recommend would be something you would want to do. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, like I remember being in Bangkok and like was just familiar with somebody there, but he like immediately and, you know, another gay person and he like immediately sort of like took me under his wing and introduced me to like his the enclave of like gays uh, who are in Bangkok. Um, And then it took us to this huge dance club called uh, DJ Station. DJ um, it was like Station. My, yeah, it was like my <laughs> second night there. Um, Next stop, uh, DJ Station. <laughs> it was it was wild. Uh, like there's one point where like, if you want to dance on stage and you're a man, like you have to take off your shirt. Oh. Um, and so like, I was like, okay. <laughs> um, and so it was funny because like a friend of mine who's there, um, the straight woman, um, there's this guy who was like hitting on her and she tried to like use me as sort of like a, like, oh no, like this is my boyfriend right here. And she like points to me and I'm like on stage <laughs> with my shirt off, like swinging around behind the sky. <laughs> and she's like, we have a very it's open like, relationship. Your boyfriend's <laughs> gay. Yeah. <laughs> Girl. Um, but it was the sort of thing where it's like that only happened because, you know, this person was like, I'm gay, you're gay. Like, let me show you all the gay things. So 100%. Yeah, that's so magic. What do y'all think about gay specific 
hotels, tours, cruises. Have you ever done something like that or would you ever? Okay. I have. <laughs> I've not done a gay cruise. That seems like there's so there's this documentary called uh, Dream Boat on Netflix mm, that will show name. you why you should not go on a gay cruise oh. because it is so <laughs> upsetting and awful. Um, Wait, why? And, yeah, I wonder. Oh, that. everyone, it's it's sort of so I should I should specify it's like a sort of a circuit party gay cruise. Sorry, uh, a circuit party is a um, there's a circuit of parties around the world that <laughs> a certain kind of gay man. Gay man often called a circuit queen uh, will attend so there are these big multi-day like festivals where everybody's dancing and <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> absolutely and so this is they moved one of these onto a boat for this or in this documentary um, and everyone just is like wanting to have sex and be hot but also sad about like the pressure it, it's just it's awful <laughs> so no I've not done that but I have stayed in gay only hotels or gay focused hotels and those are always like the cheesiest <laughs> like most like scuzzy places um, it's really maybe I, I would say maybe go there for like a drink if you want to meet the community where have you gone to one I probably shouldn't name names but there is a place in Barcelona um, that's a gay hotel it's like a brand actually that has a few in Europe and um, I have stayed. I stayed at their like they had like a, a a poorer person. They have a fancy hotel and then like a not fancy hotel. And I stayed at the not fancy one, <laughs> being the the podcaster that I am. And uh, it was just oh, it was so cheesy and like goofy and you know trying to. I remember there was a um, instead of a do not disturb. There's a do not disturb sign and then a please disturb sign on oh, the reverse. Wow. So that's the vibe. So I would not do that again. I, I think, it, again, it's better to maybe drop into the bar at those places than actually stay there because mm-hmm. it's, it's just a lot. I think I would love to go on a cruise or on, you know, a gay only like trip somewhere if I were trying to sleep with a bunch of people. Or I'm thinking of Dinah Shore, the big lesbian gathering in Palm Springs. But I think since I'm not trying to sleep with a bunch of people, <laughs> it would I prefer to go on trips with just my gay friends and make our own mm-hmm. gay trip instead of just feeling forced to be like like being on an episode of the L word for the mm-hmm. entire trip. Yeah, it's like feverish or something. Yeah. It's, it's mm-hmm. like too much of that energy in one space is like not actually fun. Um, if it sounds fun in theory maybe, but isn't in practice. Yeah. With you, Brandon? I, so I haven't been to a gay hotel or on a gay cruise. I think I would try it once like for the experience. Like say at a gay, hot- gay hotel or... Um, yeah, maybe go to the bar or something, but I can't, I can't imagine it becoming like a, a priority to like find and stay at something that is specifically that like while I'm traveling at the same time, I'm kind of pulled by like support the gays, like support their business. Mm, I'd I'd like, I'd like go get a drink, but yeah, I don't know if I'd actually do that. But like what I am curious, you know, hearing about all these places we've talked about is, um, y'all's thoughts on queer dominant places and something like gay villages or gay meccas like Boys Town in Chicago, Schoenberg in Berlin. Have you been to any? Brian, you mentioned that you have, but like what role do you think these sorts of places play in queer life today? Yeah, I definitely, I've definitely been to a lot of those. I've not been to Boys Town in Chicago, actually, I'd like to, but um, I've been to Schoenberg, I've been to Fire Island, I've been to P Town, um, Palm Springs, like a few, a bunch of different places. They have a certain appeal in that they. it is nice to be in a place where there is nothing, where you are the unremarkable person, mm-hmm. right? So where where you, where you are, there is not the feeling that I think a lot of us have, even in cities like New York where I live, 
of like a self-awareness about like how you are presenting or how you're acting or what you're doing with your partners or, or whatever like that. In those places, you really truly can, as they say, like let your hair down. But I would also say that most of them that I have been to are extremely... They're for a specific kind of queer person. So often that is, in mo- in many cases, um, male, cis, um, and, and perhaps even above those two things, like affluent. So to go to P-Town or go to Fire Island and rent a house or a hotel room is very expensive. And so the kind of people that actually go there and certainly go there regularly are going to be of a certain class. And having done that a few times now, it's a little boring and a little stifling and like not the queer sort of vacation vibe that I really want anymore at this point in my life. So I worry about them. I think I like I like the idea that they exist, but at the same time I wonder like who they're for um, at this moment. I'm always disappointed when I get to a, a gay mecca, whether it be a neighborhood or a, a gay town or anything, because it's never gay enough for me. Mm. Oh my gosh. I crave, Insatiable. <laughs> and it's certainly not queer enough for me. I mean I'm I'm just talking about like you know, LG, like mm-hmm. it's, there's always straight people in these places. And I, you know, not that I'm necessarily feel like I'm getting homophobed or anything, but I feel like I really long for that sort of queer separatist space. But then I think about, you know, what separatist spaces were there? Well, the Michigan Women's Music Festival was one. And, you know, we all know how that turned out. It was not inclusive of trans people, hostile towards trans people, and it doesn't exist anymore. So, you know, perhaps my longing for a queer separatist space, uh, you know, I'm not thinking about the nuances that make that possible or impossible. But I did read an article recently about um, Provincetown, where I've never been, but my partner and I are looking at possibly going there this summer after our wedding. And this article, I forget, it was in a traveling, like a Condé Nast traveler or a town and country or something like that. And it was like, what to do in Provincetown? And they were talking about tea dances, which mm-hmm. I throw a tea dance in the summer in D.C. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, sort of based on the same tradition that the ones in P-Town are based on. And this article was like, they're so hetero friendly. Anyone can go. Like, <laughs> do not encourage straight people to go to a gay dance party. I was incensed. And at the same time, I feel like I should say that I'm happy that these places exist. I love going to them still, but I think the image that I have in my mind of a completely queer village where it's not just that queer people are in the majority or that no one's going to look twice at me and my boo when we're like making out on a bench somewhere, but I want to not be confronted with straight people living their lifestyle at all. And I also wonder if if these (laughs) – it is disgusting. Uh, No, I mean to all our straight listeners out there, you know, I appreciate you and I – what happens in your bedroom is your business. Right. But um, Just don't rub it in my face. (laughs) (laughs) I do think about whether I – that these spaces might be more necessary for women and queer people who aren't cis men because Mm. it can be so hard to find dedicated spaces for those communities, which I'm a part of, in just a regular old city or town. Yeah, I'm kind of torn as well. Like, on the one hand, like, yeah, I appreciate them because of history, right? And when I've gone to a place like Atlanta, like, I remember when I I had just turned 21, was doing this internship in Atlanta, and I remember just thinking, like, I I need to go to a gay bar. Like, it was the first thing I did when I got there. Um, And I had zero expectations. I literally just went to 
say that I had gone um, and just like sat at the bar, got one drink and went home after like 30 minutes. <laughs> um, I'm sure it was really cute. But I like I didn't tell like, you know, any of my other friends. Like I had other friends who were interning in the city. It was something that I like had to do solo. Um, or like if there had been other like gay people who were interning, I would have like gone with them as well. And so like I still see the importance of that. And at the same time, I also think like, you know, as you know, we mentioned earlier, like who are these spaces for um there is an increasing sense of like spectatorship um on the parts of straight people in particular if they go there and then i was i was thinking about this book that i uh read last year mentioned it on um an earlier episode of the podcast but looking for lorraine about lorraine hansberry um a black lesbian writer uh who was from chicago and she wrote raisin in the sun and um, in this book the author is sort of speculating toward the end you know sort of where would Lorraine Hansberry's place be today, not only in sort of um, social activist circles, but also geographically? Um, And so she has this quote where she says, where would her place be? In Boys Town, an expensive upper crust queer community where her brownness would still be an oddity? Probably not. So, you know, I think about, you know, yes, they're important. Um, I want them to exist. I would also love for them to also, you know, not feel so necessary for people in a way that makes them have to like compete, like, to grapple with these dueling pressures of like, hey, I feel like I really need to be here um, because these are my people. But also now there's another layer of, you know, whatever sort of uh, discrimination that I'm facing once I'm in this community. So that's that's my general sense with these sorts of places. Um, kind of like you just said, Christina, like would love for them to be as queer as possible and accept- accepting as, as possible. Yeah. Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One of the best-known gay vacation meccas in the U.S. is Cherry Grove, a tiny hamlet on Fire Island in New York that's been a gay-majority town since the mid-20th century. And we're so excited to have the preeminent historian of Cherry Grove, the author and cultural anthropologist Esther Newton, here on the podcast today. Esther, welcome to Outward. Thank you very much. So your book, uh, your 1993 book, Cherry Grove, Fire Island, 60 Years in America's First Gay and Lesbian Town, is a really colorful and comprehensive history of this gay home and destination. Um, But it's also really heartfelt. You write very candidly about the people you met there, what they meant to you, the summers you spent there. How would you explain the place to somebody who's never been? Well, you have to like water, (laughs) surrounded by water. (laughs) It's on an island called Fire Island, which is off the coast of uh, Long Island, uh, I think there's 19 little townlets, you might, you might say. Uh, Cherry Grove uh, started to become, uh, not majority yet, but to have a substantial gay and to a lesser extent lesbian community in the 1930s. And how did it become the gay hub that it has been for the past several decades? There was no place other than bars for LGB 
people and people who might now be called trans to uh, congregate and have fun and, and not have to lie about themselves. And the first people who came, they didn't emphasize that they were gay. I mean, that was an understood thing. And they emphasized that they were theater people. That's how they mm, mm-hmm. thought about who, who they were. And the same thing happened in Provincetown. And they just loved it because they could put on theatrical productions. They could go to the beach and they could drink a lot. And um, it was a way of getting away from the constraints that they faced in New York City. I think a lot of us think about these places like Cherry Grove or the Pines or P-Town as these like many queer utopias, like where everything, you know, where we can escape to and be ourselves and everything will be perfect. But you, your research and writing shows that there are, in fact, many conflicts. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of nuance of that reality that you found in your work? In the beginning, it was class prejudice, basically, because the people who came out, the founders, if they weren't upper middle class or upper class, that's where their sympathies lay. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was that kind of prejudice in the beginning, but actually less prejudice against lesbians. There were lesbians there from the beginning, but they were kind of grand, a lot of them. So then later on in the 60s, really, there was tremendous prejudice against working-class people who started to be able to afford rents if they really had tons of roommates, mm-hmm. and also against, quote-unquote, ethnic groups. So there was anti-Semitism, there was anti-Italianism, there was anti-Irish. You know, all those things are part of American life, and uh, we're not exempt mm. from that. And I imagine... Uh, Racism, too. Oh, of course, racism. Yes, of course, racism. And at that time, there were no residents who were people of color. As far as I could tell over the history that I documented, the only people of color who were residents were the partners of white people who were there. And that that's pretty, you know, that that's not particular to Cherry Grove. That's, we, we've got you know, and we still have all that kind of stuff going on. It just doesn't work exactly the same way often as it does in the straight world. Yeah. One phrasing that I really liked in your book was you wrote that Cherry Grove was both a beacon toward which gays were drawn by possibility and also a ghetto into which they were pushed by hatred and intolerance of straight society. Do you think you know, in this era of increasing acceptance and protections for gay people in public spaces, there is still that sort of that beacon of possibility of being in a majority and the magic that comes with that and also the need for an escape from straight society. It's not as strong as it was, you know, in the time period that I was studying, there are more options. So I personally know lots of people who would, you know, rather live in the Hudson Valley, for example. Mm-hmm. However, they tend to kind of cluster, but there's there's less discrimination from straight society, much you know more acceptance, at least 
sometimes I don't know how deep it goes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what's sort of a, the benefit that still remains from a, a place like this? Well, they're still pretty tangible. You know, Cherry Grove, you definitely pay a gay tax to live there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that house prices are, they sell for, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so there are still plenty of people who want that. And I have to include myself because I live in a uh, women's community in Florida uh, in, you know, in the, in the winter because I can't take the cold anymore. With the caveat, I guess you'd say that I am older. Uh, how many young people and people in this community are pretty nervous about that, actually? Yeah, I, I was actually thinking about, you know, I am, I guess, a younger person, 31. And I, uh-huh, yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, I crave these kinds of spaces where it's it's all or majority, you know, gay and lesbian or queer people, and I feel different when I'm in a place that is majority LGBTQ. And I I think that there there is more of a positive pull to them than the sort of wanting to escape straight society and homophobia. For me, it's more of like an added benefit for a vacation when I'm looking for somewhere to go. And, you know, what would your sales pitch be (laughs) for a young person to keep a space like this alive? Oh, you just feel so much freer, which is what people said, you know, back in the 30s. Because, okay, I've spent my life in academia, but I have been, you know, I'm surrounded by, throughout my whole career, I was a minority, always, except when I was involved in the movement, lesbian feminism and gay liberation and all that. But even then, we were surrounded by straight people. And to be with your own, which is how I look at it, mm-hmm. it it's just so freeing. I think the biggest thing that is changing maybe is not that longing for to not have to have your guard up, but all the gender stuff that is happening means that who we is is different than, you know, it was much more clear cut when I was a youngster, you know, who we were. So I don't know how that's going to play out. Yeah, one thing that we've been talking about on this episode of the podcast, or one thing I've been talking about as a lesbian, is how a lot of times when I seek out queer spaces, when I travel, they're dominated by men. And it's so hard to find places that where women are at the center of things. Uh, Absolutely. Yes. I'd love if you could talk a little bit more about how lesbians, you know, became a larger part of the system in, you know, the system of power and everything in Cherry Grove? That's sort of a complex story. But as I said, there were lesbians from the beginning of when it started to be queer. But they were kind of la-di-da, you know, they were, um, (laughs) and they were part of the, usually part of the theater world, too. Then in the 60s, when there was more access Financially, really. Interestingly enough, the reaction of the uh, lesbians who were already there was more severe than the reaction of the gay men. And I, I put that down and discussed this in the book, that the gay men, although they did not like the class backgrounds of the men who came in the 60s, some of them were cute. 
<laughs> you know, and you, you just don't have that going on in the les- The lesbian world is much more class stratified. Well, they're both stratified, but lesbians don't have that thing going on about these working class guys are really you know, trade. trade. Yeah. Trade. I was yeah. just trade thinking that. And so a lot of the original women who had been there, not all of them, but a lot of them left when they went to the Pines. They, it was called the uh, Bermuda Shorts Triangle. When they went to the <laughs> <Hamptons>. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, they went to the Hamptons, they went to Connecticut, and they went to the Pines. For a while there, there weren't many lesbians, but then when the 60s happened, these working-class lesbians, a lot of them came out originally to work, and um, there was a lot of prejudice against them, and they really had to fight to get a place in the community, and they, you know, they were willing to be pretty adaptable, to do it, I mean, because they recognized, hey, this is a gay male, it's majority gay male. Now, what started to bring about big-time change was the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. That, that really changed relationships between lesbians and gay men a lot, because lesbians weren't homophobic, but yet, for the most part, they weren't sick. And so, well, first of all, a lot of men died, and opening up spaces for women to come out and rent and uh, or then eventually buy. And a lot of women got very involved in caretaking and stuff. So that really changed it along with uh, women's liberation, you know, and, and there was blowback. I mean, a lot of the men didn't like it. I, I wrote a, I wrote a piece about that, an essay about that. That's in Margaret Mead may be gay. Mm-hmm about how this uh, woman, who I believe still lives there, there's a Miss Cherry Grove contest every year. A very close friend of hers had died of AIDS, and she decided that in his memory, she would come in drag. She was kind of on the butch side, and she would come and drag to the Miss Cherry Grove contest and compete. Love it. And that was so controversial, mm. very, very controversial. You know, it sort of prefigures the trans debates about drag. Who can do drag? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and that that really epitomized the change that was going on. Then the last time I was there, it was women all over the place. Not, mm. I, you know, I don't know if they are a majority, but it, it seemed like it was pretty, you know, fifty-fifty. Esther, um, you know, you you have this wonderful new memoir out, and you said, you acknowledged a little bit earlier that the queer people have really been your main audience and sort of interlocutors throughout your career. Um, I'm wondering if you could just leave us with what you hope, you know, LGBT readers uh, who, you know, might pick up the book after hearing you on the show, what they might get out of it. What, what you know, why did you write it, and, 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 and what do you hope that queer people can sort of learn from your experience, uh, both personally and in the academy and, and otherwise? I wanted to tell my story, and I wanted to encourage other people to tell their stories. Because, as they say, if you're not uh, at the table, you're on the menu. I mean, we mm-hmm. just, we need so much to affirm each other. There's still so much self-hatred and shame so on the one hand, I wanted to tell a history 
because that's such an important thing for our community, especially since we're, our history is not taught in K through 12. And unless you take a gay studies course, it's not taught in college either. Mm-hmm. It's not part of the, you know, so that's, that's the thing. I, I want people to feel that their stories are worthwhile, that other people will be interested in them and that they won't be, our struggles won't be forgotten. Thank you so much, Esther. It's been so great to talk to you and uh, highly encourage our listeners to check out your new memoir, My Butch Career. Thank you so much. It's, it's, been, a, it's been a pleasure. The logistics of traveling and flying in particular usually aren't fun for anyone, but for genderqueer, non-binary, and other folks who don't fit neatly into society's simplistic binary gender checkboxes, getting where they're going can be a particularly frustrating or even harrowing experience. To hear more of that perspective, we're pleased to have Slate developer Aaron Nichols join us to discuss what happens when their genderqueer identity comes under the watchful gaze of the TSA. So before I had pre-check, I would just make sure that I had like only a single layer of clothing on whenever I went through. I think they tell you that anyway, like when you when you go through the the backscatter thing, but I would make sure like I usually wear like multiple shirt layers. So I would take off like the top shirt layer and untuck my shirt and then try to basically have no like overlapping fabric at all. Generally, I would get pulled aside for a a pat down almost every single time I went through. And at one point, a a TSA agent probably who was giving me a pat down at some point was like, oh, yeah, you should like hike your pants up when you go through um, because I guess I have an, <laughs> an unexpected amount of fabric in the crotch or something because I, I wear men's pants. So I started doing that and like the TSA agent would see me doing that and then kind of like give me this knowing glance, <laughs> like understanding that I had kind of been through this process quite a bit. So I know that when you go through the the backscatter, they choose a gender for you. And then if you don't, I guess, match whatever the template is supposed to be for that gender they they pull you aside and so I have no idea they don't tell you what you know what they've coded you as as you go through you know generally like I pass as female so like coming through the the backscatter machine and you know at the end of it when they would do the pat down they would request a female agent I never had to be like oh you know no I don't want a male agent even though I don't actually want anybody (laughs) to pat me down um and (laughs) Yeah. And it was always like, you know, it always seemed to be the crotch area that was the problem. So there was a lot of like the back of the agent's hands, like down my pants, essentially. So the thing about this is it's like, you know, whenever it happens, it's like, oh, like it, it, it sort of takes up a lot of emotional space. I like to get to the airport air early anyway, but I would go and like make sure I had, a, I had time to like stop the bar after after TSA, like thinking about it as like, oh, that agent kind of owes me a beer, you know, Um So like a year and a half ago, I went on a trip with my girlfriend and we bought tickets together like and I put her TSA pre-check number on the, you know, on the airline website or whatever. And then it was printed out on my boarding pass, too. So I ended up having kind of free trial of pre-check and it was so great. It was like the pre 9-11 airport experience where you leave your shoes on and they don't have to push a button for your gender. And <laughs> and then uh, you go through the just the metal detector. And then 
you know, that's it. And I did actually get patted down one time after that, after that. And it was like, oh, you've been randomly chosen, which who knows. And the agent was like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I was like, wow, <laughs> this is my first pat down apology. And it was, it was not the usual crotch pat down. It was just like the pocket of my shirt or something. Yeah. And so after that experience, I decided to get my own pre-check membership. And it's been so great since then. But yeah, it is almost like a tax on trans and gender nonconforming people. I think that I'm sure that's not the intention of it, but it. I think that anything that makes you stand out or, you know, slightly what people aren't expecting or maybe your ID doesn't say what people are expecting it to say, like, creates this, like, extra security. It's like when when the TSA agents are, are on guard for anything that might be unexpected, just being... A gender nonconforming person is unexpected. Even though there are tons of gender nonconforming people, I think it's just. So, as we've hit on in various ways throughout this episode, the reality of queer travel is that it often comes with lots of anxiety. So, we've decided to probe this anxiety in our advice segment. So here's a question from managing producer of Slate Podcasts and queen of Lesbos, June Thomas. <laughs> Lesbos or Lesbos? Lesbos? I think it's Lesbos, isn't it? I looked it up today. What? Really? Oh, and Miriam Webster said Lesbos. Huh. I shit you not. She is Lesbos. <laughs> but so here's the thing. I pronounced it Lesbos before. Me too. Me too. And then I was just like, I don't trust myself after the bet. Porter incident. Um, <laughs> I'm so, constantly looking up how to pronounce things before I go on no, a podcast. Yeah. So I looked it up, and Mary Muster said it was that, or they gave something that started with an it, or like a had a V sound in the middle of it, or something. Interesting. So I think, Thank do you we so want to? Well, do we want to pronounce it like the like way that people know no, it, or like will they be do like it the correct no, way? Brandon, you checked. Okay. You're yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Believe in yourself. You're the king of Lesbos. <laughs> Take it away, June. Okay, children. So here's the situation. When I am traveling, I sometimes feel myself like going into a spiral of where like, I am a victim of homophobic <laughs> discrimination. No. And like, <laughs> I guess sometimes I am, but like, let me give you some specific examples. So like one time I was in uh, Tokyo, a place where for various reasons I've been quite frequently. And I was in this like cafe that I go in again with some frequency and I was at, like in line getting my terribly tempting chocolate croissant. Yes, it was chocolate crow. Yes, yes. <laughs> and um, the woman said to me, she, only, she looked at me and she said to me in English, we're full. And I was like, what? That's Here some I am. straight up Jesus of Nazareth Yeah, shit. exactly right. And I was like, come on. I'm in here every day. I'm like, I- I'm, I've eaten way too many of your delicious <laughs> chocolate croissants and yet no to, you're giving me this you're serving discrimination you know and I'm like totally prepared to be like picketing outside and then I but I was of course I just was going to have one less chocolate croissant you know so I go I pay I thrust down my money they don't allow tips there anyway so like I couldn't withhold my tip <laughs> but I was like you know I, was, I just thrust down my money and I went to sit down and I exclaimed this to my girlfriend and she was and she speaks Japanese and knows Japan very well and was like yeah no you know what happened is in Japan you have to sit down first you know you leave your stuff and then you go and get your things and because we 
they are full and they, they you know the person at the desk didn't know that Rosemary was my partner and was had already got a seat uh. like they don't want you doing that you have to leave your stuff go get it and she just you know that happens a lot I'm sure there are lots of um, you know gaijin who go in that place and she just didn't want that to happen you know she didn't speak didn't have a ton of English so she said it in a way that sounded like accusatory to me but that's all in my head and mm. so like you know you, there was probably something going on and, and it it is reflective in some way of my, you know, inner turmoil and the life that I've lived that I go there. But, like, actually I was just being over-defensive or, you know, something that when we're at a hotel and you're checking in and with my girlfriend and the person at the desk says, just one bed. And it, this, like, sends me into, and I always want to go, like, yes, one bed. We're lesbians. We're going to be having sex. And, like, just going into, like, outrageous detail. When one vibrating bed if you have it. <laughs> yes. Give me something pervy. I don't know. I don't even care. Like, you know, whatever. I just want to, like, get into it. But actually, maybe it's just a reasonable question because they just want to know, like, are we friends? Do we, like, maybe we don't. If we were friends and we weren't going to be, like, you know, yeah. getting in the middle of the bed, like, maybe that would actually be a really – and I'm just reacting. So I guess my question is, is my sort of sense of, like – always being prepared to be like have homophobia happening to me is it reasonable because you know the world is full of homophobes or should I just chill out and just kind of assume that as an older white woman with an American passport I'm going to be just fine and just kind of let things be children advise me (laughs) (laughs) so I think it's great to always be on the alert for discrimination because one shitty thing about being part of a you know, marginalized community is that there's always that question going through your mind about, did I make that up? Did I overreact? Was that homophobic? Are, did Was that person having a bad day? And, and this, you know, applies to any sort of marginalized community. So I think it's, it's, you're not crazy for thinking that sometimes you're being subjected to discrimination, except maybe in that one Japanese instance. <laughs> you know, even if, because I agree with you, sometimes with a hotel, it's like, well, it would have also been weird if you had shown up with your actual just platonic friend who had short hair and they just assumed the two of you were lesbians and together. And that's just because when people look at a woman and a man, they automatically assume they're romantic partners. And when people look at two women, they're like, what? <laughs> like, what's happening here? There must be a mistake. Or uh, I remember one time I was in Hawaii with my partner and we were checking into a hotel. And the as the guy was checking us in, he was like, oh, are you guys sisters? And I was <laughs> like, do you ask everyone what their relation is to the person staying with them? Like, it just, it felt like the stupidest small talk. And we were like, no, you know what? We're not. We're like lovers. We're lesbian <laughs> lovers. And we're checking this hotel. And the like guy was screaming like, in the lobby. He was like, I'm so sorry. I hate when people do that to me and my boyfriend. I was like, you're <gasps> fucking gay. And he was so embarrassed and apologetic, which he should have been, that he was like, you know what? I'm just going to put in here that it's your honeymoon. I'm going to send a <gasps> bottle of champagne to your room. Where? Yeah, I was like, okay, I forgive you. So you handled it appropriately. Yeah. So like, clearly, like the benefit was to like, yes, be you know on the alert for it and be outraged. But again, it was like there's definitely a degree of privilege to doing that. Like, I can demand to speak to a manager, and this was in Hawaii, which Mm -hmm. is in uh, the U.S. and and a famously homo accepting state. Yeah, I mean that's what that that point speaks to my like response to this, which is like I think it really depends on the context. Like, if you were in like a major world city like Tokyo or New York or Madrid or you know Honolulu, 
I think it's probably worth giving the people the benefit of the doubt that they either are not prejudiced or are, and I think this is true for like service folks, service workers in general, like are just too exhausted to like mm. give a shit about yes. it. Um, <laughs> I think I think most of them just don't have the energy probably to be super hateful towards you, even if they don't like love the idea of your lesbian bad uh-huh. situation. <laughs> um, so I, I, I definitely carry around the same, I think sort of um, awareness and like weight of that, that, that all of us have described and, and I relate to that. But I, but I've, as I've gotten older anyway, I've sort of been like, well, chances are in this city or this place, these people just don't care or, or are supportive probably. Um, now if I were, you know, checking into the Motel 8 and, um, you know, somewhere in the deep South, very different consideration, right? Like a Mm -hmm. lot more nerves about that and how to handle it. And, you know, maybe would even consider like lying about it, um, Mm. for, for safety reasons. Make sure we have two beds. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know. It's just, that's harder to navigate. It's harder to navigate, but I think, but I think, um, I I would say like in most major metropolitan places in countries at least that are you know that are um somewhat accepting or, or supportive of, of queer folks like they probably don't care. Yeah. And also I would like add like it with even within that particular city that you might be in but also like where in that city you are. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. So like I remember when my partner and I were in Austin de facto gay city last year year before things were totally cool like Austin super LGBTQ friendly. And we were standing outside. We had like made reservations at this restaurant and we're standing outside and talking about gay things or something that was like super progressive. But there was this like group of dudes. <laughs> so when we were doing poppers yeah. the other day. Yeah, I love this. <laughs> <laughs> but this like uh, car of like like straight dudes like rolled up um, behind us and like we're in line behind us. My partner's like, hey, hey, like let's maybe like change the topic mm-hmm. just because it was like a place where like neither of us was like from. We were just like tourists and we were just like, we just want to like get in and like eat at this restaurant that a friend told us to eat at. Um, but it was more sort of like a preemptive sort of, we don't know if you're homophobic, but you know, we're, we're not trying to have one of those days um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. slash like, I don't know, face some sort of, I don't know, physical violence or something. Um, so we like changed it to, like I don't know a movie we just saw, we just saw or something, a but very you know, straight movie. Yeah, it was just like <laughs> you know, no was Mama it? Mia too, no Mama Mia too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the Hangover, oh, Any, like a Will Ferrell movie <laughs> or something. You changed to talking about barbecues, so you ch- went from one kind of meat to another. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> Saucy. Um, yeah, I try to preempt these things on Airbnb sometimes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, like I, if I'm going somewhere especially if it's somewhere where i might have some sort of interaction with the person renting to me mm-hmm. i will explicitly be like yeah. my fiance deborah like <laughs> with an a on the end you know what that means or like i've said that she's my wife she's not my wife but like people know what that mm-hmm. means people don't always right. know what girlfriend means what partner right. means right and we've um several years ago we went to cape town south africa whoa and i had been there many years before that and had like encountered some homophobia and so but our budget at the time was such that we couldn't really afford a hotel we weren't going to stay at a private airbnb and so we're going to stay in one where we would have some interaction with the owners and we found two gay men who were renting out a, a room in their apartment and it was so great. First of all they were they each had a stereotypically gay job. <laughs> um, like one was a hairdresser, the other I, me and Deb were like fighting about this this morning. 
I think he was maybe an interior designer. She thinks he like decorated dolls or he was like a, <laughs> a costumer at a theater or something. So gay. They were super gay. I don't know if decorating dolls is a job. <laughs> it, well, a one was job. definitely like That's the stay job. at home. It's a vocation. Certainly. One was a, a housewife. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was, you know, it, not always an option, but for us, it was mm. a perfect option. And they also gave us some tips about like what, to, what gay things to do in um, Cape Town. Um, but I've also had experiences like last year. This isn't making me sound like such a globetrotting bougie motherfucker. <laughs> um, we were in Mexico last year for a friend's wedding. And before their wedding, we went to the Sierra Gorda, which is probably the best trip we've ever taken. It's this really amazing like national park in Mexico. And we were going to some areas that were extremely rural, like mm. no electricity, sort of like a subsistence farming types of communities. And we got to this one place where there was a couple little shacks you could rent. And the first one had a snake in it. And so huh. we we're like, oh, can we just stay in this other empty one? And they're like, well, yeah, but there's only one bed. And Deb looks really gay. And I'm like, is there any way she th- is there any way they think we're not gay? But I just <laughs> think that in a, in a lot of places, there's not the same, A, like gayness might not really be a thing like uh, there might not be many out people and also the signifiers of it might mm-hmm, be completely mm-hmm. different i was talking to somebody else the other day who's sure. very gender queer and she said that she's had people in other countries be like are you a woman or a man like mm-hmm. men ask her and she'll be like woman they'll be like cool and then start hitting on her <laughs> it's like okay but look at me like i'm not interested well but sometimes in some countries uh depending it's not Sometimes if the language uh, requires, you know, different endings for different genders, like I've been asked, you know, are you a girl or a boy so that they can figure out what endings to give me? Oh, uh, yeah. So I think that, that like, I don't think that's even particularly freighted. Because like, the first time somebody asked me that, I was like, wow, personal question. <laughs> but they were just like, no, I just need to know how to talk to you. You're like, no mm-hmm. big thank. Yeah. Yeah. Does anyone else have any good or bad encounters while traveling that they want to share? I was once called sir by the president of Nigeria. Wow, but that was pretty honor. special. I know. Yeah, that might be. <laughs> that was pretty special, though. Uh, that was just uh, in a press conference kind of situation. And I was wearing one of my seersucker suits. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and did you correct the president? I did not, because that felt like that might be a little <laughs> bit freighted. Uh, and I think also that, like, it's for me, it's a, a like from a distance. As a child once said when they came into the bathroom when I was taking a bath, oh, you have go body and boy head. So like, <laughs> what? <laughs> oh once, my God. once I start speaking, like there's, there's not a difficult wow. call to make, but like it, I understand there's some confusion from a distance. And so I didn't correct him, but that was cool. Girl body and boy head. So yeah. that'll be the title of your memoir, June. <laughs> <laughs> So that's just about it for Outward this month. Uh, But before we head out, we'd like to send you off with your monthly gay agenda. Uh, And fitting with the travel theme, we thought we would share actual specific sort of recommendations for places or things that we've encountered while traveling that made being a queer person on the move uh, even easier and more pleasurable. Brandon, uh, what do you have for us? So hopefully this is useful if anyone, I don't know, Christina, are you going to Sydney or something uh-huh. anytime soon? Oh my God, lay it on me. <laughs> um, so my gay agenda item is the Darlinghurst suburb in Sydney. Mm. And so it's essentially Sydney's queer core. There are lots of gay and lesbian bars, uh, restaurants, shopping places that are very LGBTQ friendly. Um, and like one thing I really loved about it was just how 
at ease the whole thing felt. Like you could just ride a bus from some other part of Sydney and you kind of like step off and you're just like, I'm with my people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you see like pride flags and you see gay gay couples like holding hands and people who their entire look just sort of like screams gay. (laughs) Um, And it's the sort of like, you know, the sort of thing that needs to be, that, that doesn't need to be said out loud, but it's just like deeply felt and understood. And so one place in particular that I would recommend going there is the Eternity Playhouse. Um, and so when I was there, my partner and I went to see Torch Song Trilogy, mm. uh, which was playing. And I had never seen it. Um, I didn't really know much about it. And so he was like, I got us tickets. But it was really fascinating. So this particular theater, they their the bent of their plays sort of like leans a little bit toward like more gay plays. And so most of the audience were gay people. Uh, which was, like, so cool. So, like, you know, we, like, went and had a drink beforehand, and then we just went to this theater. And, like, during the uh, intermissions, you just kind of, like, go in the lobby, and you just see, like, groups of gay people. You see gay couples. You just see all these people just, like, having a good time. And it just felt so protective and warm. And I loved it and would would, uh, highly, highly, highly recommend it. But, you know, it was just a way to, like, fly literally across the world and to find a place where, you know, there was no explanation needed. You just kind of like lived your little gay life. I love that. Yeah. Christina. So my recommendation, I was Googling around to make sure that this thing still existed. It's called Big Dick's House of Big Boobs. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Processing. Cool. I hesitate a little bit because as I was Googling around to make sure it still existed, I found kind of a gross blog post from a straight guy who went to one of these. Mm. But my experience with it was extraordinarily queer. It's a roving amateur strip night or open mic strip night. Not all the people who perform are um, amateurs. Some of them, I think, are like pros on their days off. But um, I went to it in Austin. I think it's based out of New Orleans. And what they do is basically rent out or gain access to a private space. So the one I went to was in a club that normally hosts concerts. They've done it in uh, empty galleries and and big houses and stuff. They close it down. So it's a private event. So whatever rules about nudity, public nudity apply, don't apply anymore. You have to buy tickets in advance. They set up a catwalk and a pole and anyone who wants to can sign up ahead of time to do a striptease oh. or a burlesque act or whatever they want to do that involves getting naked. And there were – I've only been to one other strip club in my life, and it was like your typical strip club. Mm-hmm. In fact, worse than because it was an 18 plus one in like suburban Massachusetts. Um And this was the exact opposite of that. It was all genders, all bodies, all gender expressions, um, and some really kind of disturbing, strange (laughs) shit that was extremely titillating. And I had so much fun there. There were, it was definitely majority queer. And so I would recommend checking to see if that is happening in a city near you or somewhere you're visiting, especially if it's uh, Austin or New Orleans, or maybe making it happen in your own city. DC, looking at you. <laughs> Lovely, I love that. Brian, idea. what's yours? So I don't know if I think this counts. It's it's so in the sense that one moves away from one's home and then travels back to it, right? So um, I would like to recommend a gay bar in my hometown <gasps> uh, of uh, which is Rock Hill, South Carolina. I it, apparently it's been there for many years. I as a as a teenager uh, and was not out yet at the time, did not know about it until I went to college and then came back and learned about its existence. It's called The Hideaway. 
Oh, cute. Lives up to the name. It's sort of hidden up a, a, up a dirt road. Not hidden to me, but it's, it's up a dirt road. Um, it's sort of the back of a parking lot. Very nondescript. But after I discovered it, it became one of my favorite, probably my favorite gay bar, second favorite gay bar in the world. And that is because, like many small-town gay bars like it, it's the kind of place where everybody has to come because there's not enough mm-hmm. you know, options otherwise. You can't really split into gays and lesbians or, or you know, different types therein um, or otherwise. And so everybody comes. Uh, it has pool tables. It has the bar. It has uh, a stage for drag performances. It has a dance floor. It's pretty big. Um, they have jello shots. Staff is super friendly. And in fact, I've seen some of the best drag performance I've ever seen there from these queens that go on like a circuit through sort of the southeast um, through, for, through various cities. Um, but it's a wonderful place, um, and it's serving that community well, and I'm so happy it exists. And if you find yourself passing through the upstate of South Carolina, I highly recommend stopping in for a drink. I should also say that I'm happy to share my D.C.-specific gay agendas with anyone who comes to visit. My DMs are always open. Ooh, slip into those DMs. Find out. <laughs> yeah, same in, same in New York, or what else can I speak? Well, yeah, same in New York. That's it for Outward this month. Please send us your feedback, your topic ideas, your advice questions at outwardpodcast at slate.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. Thank you to Danielle Hewitt, who provided production assistance for this episode. Our producer is Danielle Schrader, Slate Podcast Senior Managing Producer June Thomas, Sparkles Like Champagne on New Queer's Eve. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, rate it and review it if it's a good rate and review. Uh, We're going to be back in your feeds on February 20th. Until then, Brandon. Bye, Christina. Goodbye, Brian. See you later. And to the rest of you, stay gay. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.